And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic The only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off Hello and welcome to Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic I'm Ian Stone, joined today by Amy Lawrence and Art De Roche Hello guys Morning 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 Morning, yes, that's the spirit. I think we can call this one the uh, contractual obligation podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that we we sort of feel like we have to uh, maybe go through uh, the game last night. By the way, you will also hear the voice of James McNicholas, who was at Old Trafford. Uh, he did a little uh, post-match recording, which will play to you at some point. Yeah, a little bit soul-destroying, really. A little bit upsetting. We sort of felt like they were there for the taking, especially after we went 1-0 up with one of the strangest goals I think any of us have ever seen. So we thought we'd ask the question, what are the other quite odd goals you've seen over the years? Uh, we have opened this out, not just Arsenal goals, but Amy, we'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one that springs most readily to mind is the controversial goal against Sheffield United in the FA Cup that led to the very unusual, I'm not sure I can ever remember a similar situation as this, where the game finished and everybody decided it wasn't cool. So they just offered to replay it and it got accepted. I'm sure most of you know the goal. I think Sheffield United had a a player down injured. The ball got knocked out of play for them to get some treatment. And when the ball was put back into play, Carney went skipping away up the touchline. Sheffield United players were astounded and he put the ball across for Mark Overmars to tuck in. Hilariously, uh, I think Arsene Wenger at one point sort of, or somebody tried to make the point that Carney sort of didn't really know the the gentleman's agreement rule, which seems pretty unlikely if you've already by then been, you know, a professional player for quite a while and won the Champions League and so on. So it was very bizarre. It was very, very heated. I do remember Steve Bruce going a very brighter shade of purple and the Sheffield United players, uh, you know, attempting to leave the pitch en masse and kind of calling for an abandonment and what have you. There was debate afterwards and I saw one or two people mentioning this last night, which I also thought was bonkers, that there was some suggestion that Arsenal should let the opposition score. (laughs) Which I can understand that a bit more from the point of view of the Sheffield United game but I definitely can't understand it from the point of view of, of the game at Man United yesterday. Henry Winter in the Times basically was talking about Arsenal's lack of sportsmanship. And I thought, <laughs> come on, Henry, <laughs> I, I don't was, think so I, in this case. No, I mean, for you know, it's very much not the same situation. I don't think you could, you, you could argue that against Sheffield United, there was a sort of flagrant disregard for, you know, the concept of sportsmanship. I don't think that was at all what happened in the the... the immediacy of the game yesterday it was a mad one in the sense that I think most people didn't really think it was within the rules to offer to replay a game on the basis of the result being unsporting 
And um, I think it so happened that somebody quite senior in terms of the FA sort of uh, games committee was at that Arsenal-Sheffield United game at Highbury. And in the you know, very quick discussions that were going on after the game with Arsene Wenger and David Dean and everybody being very aware that this was not a, a scenario that they were happy with, got hold of this guy and said, can we play the game again? And he sort of was forced into making a decision there and then, which is extremely unusual because the FA certainly at that time were masters of needing sort of committees and subcommittees and sub-subcommittees to <laughs> sort of think about if a game should even kick off. So that was a, a, a startling situation that they actually replayed the game, which Arsenal won. Which we did win. A couple of things, Amy. I think that is Steve Bruce's natural shade, uh, <laughs> that purple, by the way. Although it was very bright, he was definitely not happy. Even if Carnu bless him, didn't know the rules about the gentleman's agreement. Mark Overmars definitely yeah, did. And he went herring off and scored that goal at the end and had this look on his face like, yeah, what? It was I, it was fantastic and hilarious, but we did the right thing. But I don't buy into the whole thing that we should have done last night. If they would have done, I think I'd have turned my back on the game. I couldn't possibly have given a goal to Manchester United. They're capable enough of getting goals against us without us giving them one as well. Art, you've got one which is not about Arsenal. It's not, although Smith Rowe's goal against Watford a few weeks ago could potentially go into that kind of category. No, um, no, but no. I'm not, <laughs> not going to talk about that. It's Darren Bent against Liverpool from 2009 when he was at Sunderland and Sunderland were actually good and in the Premier League. The beach ball game, a Liverpool fan actually being the one who threw the beach ball onto the pitch and it backfiring against them pretty much within seconds. I don't think we've seen another beach ball on a football pitch since then. I can't even think of what circumstances that the ref would even think of to either allow or disallow the goal. So I think that one just sticks out, especially just with it being fairly recent as well. Art? Yeah? Do you, do you think, I mean, I think it's interesting that the ball, that beach ball was thrown by... Liverpool fans and the goal <laughs> went again. Like, if it was thrown by Sunderland fans and it helped them score a goal, do you think that makes a difference? Or do you think yeah, it's the Amy, referee similarly kind of got his hands I, tied behind Amy, his back? Yes. To ask the question, what if a, a, a Sunderland fan had infiltrated into the Liverpool fans <laughs> and threw a beach ball from there? No, but I'm saying that this is what would happen if these things, if there was a rule. Was that a Liverpool fan or was that a... I mean, I get what you're saying, but do you think it would be different? No, I mean, but I'd I'm say just thinking no. in terms think? of how people get their knickers in a twist about fair play. And in the same way yes. that... So let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that... Um, well, I suppose it would have been... I don't know. If, if the hair had gone down and it wasn't necessarily a foul that would be punishable, but the influence of his going down was an Arsenal player... Would it have been different? The fact that it was Fred didn't really give anybody a leg to stand on in terms of, oh, pardon the expression. <laughs> Art, what, Art, what do you think about that? Obviously, the two like very different situations. So yes. uh, with the United one, probably it would have done, but you got to wait till, I can't even remember who was referee last night, but whoever... Martin Atkinson. Martin Atkinson blew the whistle. He didn't blow it until the, the ball went in. So we're all fine there. <laughs> with the, the Liverpool and Sunderland one, I don't think they would have had that just sense to go that deep that quickly. <laughs> so yeah, no, so um, no. I reckon that probably yeah. would have stood as well, even if it was a Sunderland fan. 
All right, let, let's talk about the game then. Um, no, I mean, let's not. Let's talk off. about beach balls <laughs> oh, a bit more. Right. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, what can you do? We're here because we, we got beat 3-2 by Man United in a game that I really think that we should have got something from. Before we came on, I was complaining about uh, Mohamed Elneny and Amy, and I think rightly, I get this, sort of told me off because uh, said that um, perhaps he wasn't the worst of our problems. I suppose it felt to me, Amy, like his lack of progressive passing hurts us, particularly in the second half when they let him have the ball. You're right, though, Matt. Perhaps I shouldn't start with him. Where do you think the problems were then, Amy? Well, I think that this is a team that had put a very good run together, but in a way that was still imperfect and had room for improvement. I think nobody was under any illusions during the 10-match unbeaten run that, they felt like this was an, an Arsenal team finding something, developing something and on the up. And it's obvious that there's more developing and more ascendancy in all sorts of situations on the pitch that are needed in this team to take that next step. I don't think it's as simple as being able to pinpoint one or two things that were particularly costly. I think there's a whole range of things and it gives an overall picture of a team that was not capable or ready to be strong enough in its game plan, in its execution, in its duels, in its imagination, in its bravery to do the job. And the job was there to be done. And I think everybody feels that. Even irrespective of the opening goal, I think that that is a, that is a weak, imbalanced Man United team that have had a very poor run at home and that's what feels so maddening about it because it's not the first time. I think we can all think of other similar situations where a game has felt significant for Arsenal, where it feels doable and it feels like something is, is there to, to really make a kind of leap onto the next level. And the amount of times that those games have come up in recent years and Arsenal ha- have been almost paralysed by that possibility... I think that's what's quite frustrating, that there's something that actually affects the game or the mentality that seems to kind of freeze what progress had been going on before. I mean, I think it reminded me in so many ways of the of the same fixture in 2016 when Arsenal had just beaten Leicester to go top of the league. It was, a you know, at the time, a three-horse race with Leicester, Tottenham and Arsenal. This was a 3-2, wasn't it? Yes. This was and, Marcus and, Rashford scored. Correct. And, yeah. and and the United team was fairly shambolic at the time, missing loads of players. They had to throw on two teenagers, one of whom was Rashford. The other one, I think, was called Varela. I can't even particularly remember him. And, yeah. you know, Arsenal were at relatively full strength and had a league to go and try and win and put in the most pathetic performance on the day. And players that you wanted to stand up and say, here we go. This, you know, we're going to make our move here. We are ready. We are motivated. We are determined. We are not going to miss this goal. It's completely like fell out, effectively fell over while they were trying to fresh air kick the ball in terms of that ambition. And I felt similarly to yesterday where you think, get back into the top four for the first time in a while. Amplify this progress that has been going on and make it clear that, all right, 
Everyone knows the top three are the top three and you have to take those on the chin. But for the rest, you go toe to toe, you go eyeball to eyeball and you absolutely fight for the right to play and, and win. And Arsenal weren't capable of that on the day and they cede the initiative to Man United again. All right, Amy. That, I mean, make make some great points there. But Art, do you would you concur with that? I all I would say about that is I I, I think there were times, certainly the first fifteen minutes, when I think we did take it to them, and and although we didn't, we scored a sort of slightly bizarre goal. We were worth a one 0 lead. I, I think at that point we were playing well. I don't think it was as bad a performance as twenty sixteen. What do you think? I would agree with most of what Amy said. I think even. Though, like you say, Ian, they did start the game well. I think after, say, an hour, they just looked like they were shot. They couldn't do anything. And I just felt sick watching it because when you see, say, as we've spoken about before, it's mostly the younger players that have been taking that responsibility. So Saka and Smith-Rowe for most of the season. Then last night, it was Gabriel Martinelli who's coming in for his first start since I think it was the Chelsea game. And I think he was head and shoulders above anyone else on the pitch. And um, that's including Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who's captain, and Thomas Partey, who, again, just, I feel, went missing. And I don't think that's something that's just exclusive to the Man United game. I think that's been a trend over the past few weeks, where even when he's been alongside Sambi Lokonga, Lokonga's been the player in midfield who's been taking responsibility, becoming available to actually get on the ball in midfield and drive the team forward, whether that be with dribbles or passing. And it was just really disappointing that it felt like the after Arsenal went 1-0 up, they just let the game go to Manchester United. And when the game is there to get back into the top four for the first time in this season, basically, and you just, I guess, capitulate like that, it just made me feel like, is this really it? Especially when you compare Arsenal to the teams that they should be competing competing with this season. Manchester United are in there. West Ham, who we play in a couple of weeks, are in there. And this was a really big chance. We just, I think, got lucky that West Ham also dropped points earlier in the weekend. In the week, sorry. Yeah, it just was not a great night at all. No, not a great night at all. And I and I also, I suppose the point I was making about El Nenny and some of the other picks as well was that some of those things are those things are on the manager. You know, I mean, if Lukonga's good enough to play at Liverpool and then be kept in and play decently against uh, Watford, why not keep him in? Uh, why? bring El Nenny in. I know he had a good game at Old Trafford last season. Why bring Nketiah on instead of Pepe? I think there were some strange decisions. Why not play Tierney? I understand that Tavares did well against Watford after he had a, a bad night against Liverpool, but Tierney surely is the number one, and I think his crossing is is better, and and I think we could have used a bit more experience in that Who do you think he would team. have been crossing so, to? I think Aubameyang was well, going to get on the end of those crosses? Listen, I think there's no doubt that, that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is suffering. Uh, he's not playing well, but he's also suffering a bit from lack of service as well. He's not a back-to-goal uh, striker, and, and the ball wasn't sticking with him, really. Uh, I think Tierney can get in behind, and I think Aubameyang would appreciate uh, a few crosses going in there. But, yes, this can be argued. Amy, on Thomas Partey, I, I suggested a couple of weeks ago that... Um, He's not the same player without uh, Diego Simeone shouting at him. And you said to me, no, that's a bit disrespectful to him. But there's something not right, is there? 
Well, it looks like it, but I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I think, I think probably Mikel Arteta would be the person who's desperate to find out how to make him tick and have his confidence. But it is quite alarming to see him be a bit of a passenger. I think it must be really frustrating for the manager as well, because some of these bigger signings, like you say, it's when you talk about things being the manager's responsibility, the picks being the manager's responsibility, the formation, you know, the, the motivation, what have you, all being a reflection of, of that. There are certain players in that team that he pushed for like hell. And Thomas Partey was one of them. To push to the point where you're asking the owners to put their money in their pocket and provide the cash for his release clause on transfer deadline day. Otherwise, there's no signing him anyway. And if you go that hard in pursuit of a player, you obviously really want them to work out. So I think it must be dry. I mean, it, if his hair wasn't what it is, he'd be pulling it all out, Mikel Arteta probably, <laughs> trying to work this one out. Don't touch the hair, Mikel. All right. It's <laughs> an inspiration story, to it? all of us. But um, it's very hard. I mean, he obviously had a slightly unsettled start for a variety of reasons. But, you know, in, in this being his, uh, his second full season, you would like to think that an experienced quality player can really kick on. I mean, using, say, Gabriel as an example, he had some ups and downs in his first season. We could see plenty of potential and promise. And this season, he has been colossal. He's had that, you know, benefit of a year behind him to get used to a lot of stuff. And he's emerged to show, you know, a whole new level. I don't know why that's not happened with Thomas Partey. It's a worry that you look at him, you look at Aubameyang and, and Pepe, who by now is definitely of what should be peak age. He's been at the club a number of years. To not be getting a look in in a game like that and for someone who is pretty sure to be leaving the club and has barely played this season and Katia getting on instead is troubling. It's not what you want to be having senior players just not providing that leadership and that can be leadership by example even if it's not just leadership but by your on the pitch contributions ideally it's both but all those things are a bit absent at the moment in in those players that have just been mentioned yeah Martin Odegaard um, Art scored a very nice goal really a good riposte when United went 2-1 up you feared and then suddenly we're back in it at 2-2 and that was a decent pass from Thomas Partey to Gabriel Martinelli first time cross and Odegaard swept it in and then he goes and gives away a stupid penalty sometimes players have to realise surely they get the wrong side of someone and Fred was clever he left his left foot back there but Martin Odegaard was not getting that ball. It was such a stupid decision. When you're in that position, whether you're a defender, a midfielder or a forward, you, I don't think there's any thought in your mind that should be, I'm going to try and get this ball. You just have to let it happen and then try and defend on the second kind of phase. And I think that the way the game went for Odegaard last night was almost just summing up how his season's gone. He's had very bright moments mostly towards the start of the season or say the September month and then since then he's just been quite erratic in terms of yes there's been moments where he's tried to make himself uh, available for the ball against Watford for instance he was very good when he came on off the bench but then when he starts against Newcastle again he's trying almost too hard I think to make an impression where he's trying to the point where he's just overthinking simple things. 
So in that Newcastle game, there were moments where he'd make a nice double movement to get into some space to receive the ball, but then the pass he just gets totally wrong. Against Manchester United, he had a few decent touches as well. I think one in the first half where he lays the ball on to Gabriel Martinelli in the box. Yes, that was a beautiful bit of football there, yeah. actually. As well as his goal, which was very well taken as well. But then you have moments like this where I think it's almost like, I don't know a better way to describe it. And this is now talking about the team in general rather than Erdegaard. But it seems like there's just some sort of complex there where they don't feel like they're deserving of being where they are. Yeah. And that's where the senior players come in, right? Yeah, definitely. And it just feels like there's a real lack of conviction there when, whether it be the pace at which they passed the ball or how they defended on the night, it just felt like they were there to go through the motions. And that can't be the case at Old Trafford. Did you not think as well that there were times when, particularly late on, and you, you're thinking, come on, give everything for Nico. Nobody wanted to take responsibility for being brave. It was like, you have it. No, you have it. No, you have it. You can see if you can, you know, try the defence splitting pass. Over to you. And that was just symptomatic of this feeling that Art was talking about, that they're a little bit scared to be where they are. And that's inexperience. I mean, it's interesting because I think you kept hearing that phrase, bumps in the road earlier on when... Arsenal start was starting to get a good run going and like everyone was pleased and satisfied but conscious that Arsenal probably weren't going to go unbeaten for like 20 25 games and uh, that there would that this this progress for since what you might define as the new team started to settle in with with so many of the new faces it was a sense that there will be bumps in the road and it's how Arsenal ride them and, and how quickly they can learn from them. It's interesting that people, maybe it's just a Man United thing or maybe it's the bigger picture that it was that carrot of the fourth place that Arsenal couldn't get their teeth around. But it felt like more than a bump in the road somehow and that's why it's a, probably a more difficult one to take on the chin. Yeah. Well, let's hear what um, James McNicholas thought of the whole thing. He was at Old Trafford last night. Uh, here's his post-match report. Hi, guys. I'm just on my way back from a, a very cold, very damp Old Trafford. Feeling a little bit deflated after Arsenal's 3-2 defeat there. I think Arsenal and Mikel Arteta will come away from that game feeling like they could and should have taken more than they did. This was not a particularly strong Manchester United side. To be honest, on the occasion, I don't think either team played particularly well. I think that Arsenal made the more egregious defensive mistakes, and I think United were more devastating with their finishing. Nevertheless, I, I think when you look back at the game, Arsenal will feel if they'd exerted a bit more control, this might have been a much more serene evening for them. I thought when they went ahead, they were clearly on top. And something that we've noticed a few times with this Mikel Arteta team is that having gone ahead, they do tend to sit back, they do tend to gather men behind the ball. They put the handbrake on, to borrow the title of the podcast. Mikarteri insists that's not instruction, so why does it happen? I guess inexperience plays its part, game management, those kinds of skills that players develop later on in their careers are not yet there in this team, and I think confidence plays its part too. When teams go behind and they raise their level of intensity, Sometimes Arsenal struggled to live with that. And had they managed to do that and got to half-time at 1-0, I think it might have been a different game. But there were defensive errors as well that need to be mentioned. 
I think Ben White was questionable on the first couple of goals. Nuno Tavares obviously stepped up pretty high on the second United goal. And Martin Odegaard, what was he doing lunging in for that tackle inside the penalty area? Absolutely crazy. But yeah, I mean, really disappointing. Mikel Arteta said after the game he felt this showed progress from Liverpool. I'm not so sure about that. You know, A, it's pretty soon on the heels of Liverpool. I'd be surprised if we were suddenly a different team. But B, I don't think this team is of the quality, the calibre that Liverpool are. I guess a team Arsenal could have beaten and should certainly have taken something from, especially when you look at the balance of the play. But there you go. Um, you know, I think with uh, a new team like this, there are going to be bumps in the road. This was a sizable bump and a bit of an opportunity missed in terms of our... Premier League standing and the table itself. Everton on Monday, let's hope we see something better. That pretty much summed it up. As you said, Amy, as James just said, uh, a bump in the road. How big a bump? Well, in the end, if we are thinking top four, because we sort of think Man United, Spurs, West Ham, maybe Leicester, those are our direct rivals. We don't want to go losing to teams like that because it's just going to make things much more difficult. Trying to be a bit more optimistic, can we sort of bounce back from that on Monday and then go on another 10-game unbeaten run? We've got some tough games, but we've played some big teams away from home now. I think that's... I know you're optimistic, Stoney, um, but I think that's probably a wee bit too optimistic when you look at the fixtures. I mean, very few teams, even the very best, go on those sorts of unbeaten runs during December, January. There's just so many games coming and... Considering this is a, a team with foibles that's not quite in that elite zone yet, I think it would be a bit ambitious to be looking for that kind of consistency in December, January. But obviously, that what they've got to be looking at is, is to get their confidence back to be collecting as many points as humanly possible in that in this difficult moment art i mean i mean i am i am sort of i'm not feigning this optimism by the way <laughs> i mean i do feel it and i like i like watching this team and there are and I, to a certain extent moments like last night you it really cuts deep because you do feel like they've got something in them but you know gabriel martinelli stepping up maybe he comes in when uh, pierre emerick Aubameyang goes away to the african nations thomas party goes over there and plays brilliantly and comes back a, a national hero and suddenly he's a different player there's still a long way to go and we're not in a bad position yeah that's the one thing arsenal fifth so it's not the end of the world i think last season what killed arsenal was the amount of draws they were having Luckily, at this point, it's been mostly <laughs> wins and losses. When you look at the players that are available, I, I don't even know if... When when you talk about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Thomas Partey, Nicolas Pepe going off to AFCON in January, are they really going to be missed that much? I mean, I, I know that's probably that's like... A big statement, A huh? very big question, but when, when you see Lokonga's being the player in midfield who's been taking responsibility much more than Partey this season. The chances that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's been missing, I think they have to be scored. Even the one last night, even though I know he was offside, but that's something, that's a chance that has to be scored. And when you see the urgency in Gabriel Martinelli's play, even when he was playing off the right, he's given defenders decisions to make, which I don't think the Arsenal front line have, have been doing enough this season. This, I guess, block of games in December, you're going to probably see a lot of rotation, which I don't think is a bad thing, just because it gives players who haven't been in the team 
a chance to prove themselves like Martinelli has. When you, I guess, look at the fixtures, probably West Ham, Wolves, Manchester City on New Year's Day. Those are the big ones in Tottenham as well in January. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that list suddenly scares me a little bit. But, you know, we'll see how how we go. And, and, uh, you know, with young teams, as in with young people... You have to give them their head a little bit and uh, and hope that they um, they can produce. But it would be useful, would it not, for them to get some help from the experienced players? And I'm guessing we're going to talk about that again uh, over the coming weeks. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Yes, Ian Stone here with Amy Lawrence and Art De Roche after the 3-2 defeat against Manchester United, which we watched last night. I mentioned about the coaching of the team, and I sort of do feel that Mikel Arteta maybe took some of the blame. Uh, he's We are currently... Uh, James McNicholas wrote an article, which I would urge you to read, on the Athletic website, talking about the fact that of the top six, and I'm doing the inverted commas sign at the moment because... Um, some of the top six are not in the top six at the moment. Of the top six sides that we all know about, Arsenal are the one team now that May and I have appointed uh, Ranić that don't have what you call a super coach. It does seem quite necessary, Amy, but um, Mikel Arteta has learnt at the feet of a super coach and he seems to be learning as time goes on. How imperative is it now, do you think? I mean, or do you think time will tell? I'm, I'm not sure about about this. I mean, I, you know, obviously I can see the point in that, you know, there's a kind of level of experience in the other coaches around the, the top teams that Arteta doesn't have yet. I mean, one thing I would say is is the idea that Ranić is a, you know, some sort of super, super coach doesn't bear like massive scrutiny. I like him enormously and I think he's hugely talented and is obviously very, very influential. But if you just take a look down his um, honours list on his CV as a manager... The under-19 Bundesliga with Stuttgart. The Regional Liga Sud with Ulm. The Intertoto Cup with Stuttgart. The Bundesliga 2 with Hanover. Runners-up in the Bundesliga with Schalke. Runner-up in the German Cup. Uh, winner of the Super Cup. And with RB Leipzig, uh, a runner-up in the Cup. Now, he's very experienced and he's done a lot of fantastic stuff. But that honours list doesn't, to me look so impressive to say he deserves to be discussed as a sort of ready-made super super coach in the same mould as a Klopp or a Guardiola or Conte. So that's one thing to sort of throw into the mix. 
I also think, you know, you look back and when George Graham came or when Arsene Wenger came, you know, they were not super coaches in terms of their managerial background either. George came from Millwall. Arsene came from Japan after a, a pretty successful time in Monaco, but not one that was like considered outrageously brilliant on the world stage. And they became super coaches and winning coaches. Everybody starts somewhere. And I don't think it's that fair to say, oh, Arteta's not a super coach and all the rest of them are, because he obviously hasn't got the experience to have, you know, gained anywhere like the important levels of success that particularly the sort of Guardiola, Klopp, Conte variety have, 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 have achieved. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting one because, because it is a young team um, that, that is well known. You've got a young team with a young manager. And I think in, in some levels, there's something quite idealistic about them all growing together. On another level, you wonder about how a more experienced coach would fare with a similar young, hungry, eager to learn group like Arsenal have. I don't know. It's a hypothetical. We don't know you know, how much difference if you parachuted Klopp or Guardiola or uh, Conte in to replace Mikel Arteta tomorrow in some sort of fantasy thing. I don't know how much difference it would make right now, like in the short term. I mean, presumably some, but, you know, I think all of these guys, it, it doesn't happen overnight, generally. A kind of a sustainable improvement that has real substance, even for the best, tends to take a bit of time. No? Ah, Amy just uh, questioned the whole uh, premise of the article, really. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, James. But... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean it like that. I think it's a good point. Yeah. Art, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the whole supercoach approach doesn't work every time anyway. I mean, Jose Mourinho at Tottenham and Manchester United's the, I guess, the big example of that. But I think when, when you look at it as a whole, it's probably just those clubs, so Chelsea, Manchester City, Liverpool... Uh, actually, Liverpool to less of an extent because of, I guess, the amount of time it took them to win the Champions League. But it was all, I guess, about immediacy when appointing their super coaches. And I think it was very clear when when Arsenal went for Arteta that it wasn't just going to be an immediate fix. So I think when, especially uh, Tottenham this year going for Conte, it's because they're in trouble <laughs> and they want yes. to get out of trouble. That's why they've gone for someone who they think is going to reward quick results. And I think whether it's right or wrong for Arsenal to go down a different, I guess, kind of path isn't really for us to find out until <laughs> we get there. But Until we find out, yeah. Um, but it is definitely, I guess, a different way of working to the other, I guess, traditional big six Again, I've used your <laughs> inverted commas, Ian. I know. Um, I know. But um, yeah. yeah, I think when you do, I guess, buy into that longer term strategy, you have to stick with it because you can't just go back on yourself. Um, and I know that's probably going to frustrate a lot of people when we do experience these bumps in the road. Like last night, um, yes. But it does add a bit more, not acceptance or because I think that's the wrong word, but you're a bit more prepared when, when those moments do come as opposed to when it might be under a, a so-called super coach. And also, I don't think the label super coach probably... Everyone understands what it means, but it's not the be-all and end-all. You see David Moyes doing a great job with West Ham. People wouldn't necessarily call him a super coach, but he's probably 
just as experienced. And I think that's where the labels in football at the minute and the top six, you can throw that into that, or the big six, I should say, you can throw that in as well. They're probably a bit too rigid. And this is probably a whole different conversation. Oh, well said, Art. I think everything you said there is spot on. I think it was great. Yeah, I would agree. Just one other thing to throw into the mix as well is that with these, to borrow one of the rigid expressions, super coaches, <laughs> there tends often to be as well a big impact made by the recruitment that goes hand in hand with that. And I think if you look at, obviously, Man City back Guardiola with more or less anything he ever wanted, Liverpool back Klopp with incredible smartness in, in the transfer market and they benefited from some absolutely brilliant sort of combination of good fortune and and uh, shrewd use of money so for example all that money they got from from Coutinho when they when they when they sold him and ended up not missing him at all they Dijk. used incredibly well and you know being able to recruit Van Dyke Allison you know and obviously before that the kind of Mane Salah type of, of players uh, has been completely game changing for them and and Klopp might not have created a European championship a champion winning team and title winning team had he not been able to buy such outstanding players in key positions so I think that those things are a factor as well and even when you look at Man United obviously although Arsenal spent heavily this summer just gone you know notably they had they spread that on quite a lot of players and we'll see uh, in, in a little while to come whether that has been proved to be brilliant, but you always have a choice to an extent, don't you? If you've got like, say, a hundred million to spend, are you going to buy a ninety million or eighty million player, or are you going to buy five twenty million players, or how you divvy up that money? And and that depends on what your squad needs and what kind of players you're you're wanting to bring in. So, I think that's a factor as well. I think we'll be having this discussion again at some point. Just a quick word on Ray Kennedy, who died, sadly, this week. I mean, he was great for Arsenal, scored the winning goal at Spurs to win us the double, or to win us the league part of the double in uh, 1971. You know, he played up front for us, and then he went to Liverpool and became just such a super player, <laughs> the way he was strolling around. I hadn't really seen that in him. But anyway, I just uh, I thought we should really mention the fact that he passed this week. Amy, did you see, did you see him play? Only sort of on TV for Liverpool. I, I was born in 71, so I didn't manage to see any of the <laughs> the uh, yeah. double heroics properly. But my stepdad maintains to this day that uh, the title-winning goal at White Hart Lane, he says, was the most important goal the club has ever scored. So to people of a certain generation, there's a resonance there that is incredibly deep. And another goal worthy of, of mention that I think... Is, is huge in the club's history is the the Fairs Cup of 1970. Oh, that goal away from yeah, home. Yeah, and Frank McClintock told a wonderful story once, uh, which was as much kind of about him and about that team. It'd been 17 years without a trophy at that point for Arsenal, and it hung the history of the club, the you know the great history under Her Herbert Chapman and all the great successes of the past sort of seemed to hang like an albatross around their necks. I think they felt at that time, and they got to this. Uh, this cup final, they played, I think, Cruyff's Ajax in the semi-final and then were up against Anderlecht, who were a great, great team at that time and went over for the first leg to Belgium and were 3-0 down and getting absolutely mullered. And Ray Kennedy, I think it was his 
first goal in Europe or something like that. He'd only played about four times ever uh, as a teenager, came on and scored another one of his sort of trademark headers. And in the dressing room, they all went in and everybody was completely heads down, like thinking that they'd more or less blown the final. And Frank McClintock stood up and went, what's wrong with you? You know, and went round the dressing room screaming at everybody, going, we're going to win this, that goal from Ray, we're going to win this now. And like in this kind of iconic team talk, managed to completely change the mood from think them coming off the pitch thinking, Christ, and Elect are amazing and we got tonked and Ray Kennedy had got a consolation to thinking that goal was going to win Arsenal the tie. And they won 3-0 in the second leg at Highbury and it was, by all accounts, one of the most joyous occasions ever in the history of Highbury. Charlie George. Now it's Samuels going in hard. And a great goal by Samuels! 3-0! So Ray Kennedy was responsible for two of the most legendary goals of their time for Arsenal and was a popular guy in, you know, in the dressing room. Uh, had a chat with Sammy Nelson. Um, recently we were talking about Ray and he was sharing some of his memories and Sammy's a funny guy and he was saying how, how he, you know, he said, I'm not sure you'd want to be printing really some of the stories that I can tell you about, about <laughs> Ray. And he was like, look, he was a... Lovely guy. And if you got on with him, you could have a laugh and a joke. And he was great. He said, but if he didn't take a shine to you, if you weren't his cup of tea, like he'd really let you know. And he had a kind of side to him <laughs> that I think the rest of the lads quite liked because he was he was tough, you know, if he wanted to be. Sammy remembered a, a, um, a reserve game when they were all coming through quite a lot of that double team. Sammy, Pat Rice, Ray Kennedy, Charlie George, Eddie Kelly, they were all coming through at a similar time. They played against, I think, West Ham in a reserve game. And the the guy playing centre-back for West Ham, marking Ray, apparently was a was a boxer or, you know, had been a boxer or something and just spent the whole game kicking lumps out of Ray Kennedy. And uh, Sammy says Ray would take... He would take people kicking lumps out of him, you know, he would withstand it up to a point. And when the threshold had been crossed, then he would let you know that that had been enough. And apparently this boxer, defender, took one too many bites at Ray Kennedy and Ray just turned around and lamped him and took absolutely floored him with one punch. And Sammy said he was like John Wayne, just turning around like... Poof. And then he said he just casually turned around and walked off the pitch because, you know, without even looking at the referee for a red card type of thing. But um, he was much loved and a huge part of Arsenal's history. And I think it's really lovely that he's well remembered and he had a very sad and end of his life with a lot of suffering with illness and we can only just hope that he's in a better place now and that he's send our love to his family and friends let's have a song to finish the um podcast um i'm gonna start with uh, red hot chili peppers and give it away okay because i sort of feel like we did last night, and I am frustrated. My optimism remains undimmed, Amy, <laughs> but um, you know what? It, sometimes you just think, no, come on, you can do better than that, and hopefully they'll learn. Art, what have you got? So I'm going with a song mostly for a lyric that's in it. It's called Soulmate by Matt Miller, but 
there's a, a line in it where he says, cut the strings to my balloon and watch me fly. I'm waiting for Arsenal to cut the strings and let their attacking players fly because I think that's all that, well, not all, but that's where a lot of yeah. the, I guess, frustration is. We just want to see the players fly and they're not doing that at the minute. Or to put it another way, Amy, take the handbrake off, <laughs> right? What have you got for us, Amy? Well, it felt like quite a harmful defeat against Manchester United in terms of hopes and aspirations. So um, I've gone for primal scream and damage. <laughs> yeah. OK, I would want to leave you on two downbeat and over there it is. That's it. That's it for Handbrake Off. We're back uh, on Tuesday after hopefully an away win uh, at Everton. Thanks to Art. Thanks to Amy. Thanks to James for chipping in. And thanks to Steve who stood in for production this week. I've been Ian Stone. Thank you for listening. See you soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.